Hello, Derek Porter here from GovTech Q&A. For this episode, I am joined by Sanford Hess, IT Director at the City of Urbana, Illinois. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. During the interview, Sanford shared with me his thoughts on many different topics, such as his transition from working at a private sector consulting firm to becoming Urbana's Director of IT, the evolution of IT's role in government, how government is utilizing technology to deal with the challenges arising from the current pandemic, security concerns, and, and much, much more. Now, just an important disclaimer before we start the interview. All of the ideas expressed in this interview are the personal statements and opinions of Sanford Hess and do not reflect the opinion statements of the city of Urbana. And with that, I want to thank Sanford for taking the time to speak with me I, I really did enjoy listening to his thoughts, his insights, and his experiences related to public sector and technology. All right, with that, let's start the interview. Thank you for watching or listening. I really appreciate it. GovTech Q&A. Discussing the impacts of technology innovation in local and state government with forward-thinking civic leaders. For me, what motivates me in the morning when I get up is I'm working for the people who live in my area and right. help, you know, helping to make the best use of their tax dollars and helping them to, you know, have an efficient and, you know, um, open government. And that's, I can really get behind that. That motivates me. That motivates you. That makes sense. That That's a perfect segue into my, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, how did you go or why did you go from private sector, 20 years of consulting? And it, it was, it was two governments, right? You were, you were right. consulting to government. And I, right. I, I think you had mentioned in one video about uh, implementing financial systems, maybe specifically, and yeah. then, you know, becoming an I, IT director for, for, for your city. Sure. Well, um, what happened in my case was I so the, the the history of my my uh, my prior employment was that I spent sort of the first 17 years doing full time work and different ways regarding the, but always on government financial systems. I mean, it was a we you know, we had a product and we sold services. But right. really, at the end of the day, that's all I did was government financial systems. I took a three year mid-year midlife crisis as my wife points out a hiatus where i ran a movie theater and for me it was it was a dream come true to have the opportunity to do that and i still worked half time while i was doing that and the company was actually great about that but at the end of that work when i reached back out to them i had actually been a remote employee up to that point for a while and I reached out to them and said, hey, I can, you know, come back and keep doing what I'm doing remotely. And they had so much business at that point that they said, no, we need everybody to get back on the road and help. And I had a family and, you know, I live in a place where I, I used to live in Chicago, where I was close to a region, you know, a big airport and you can go anywhere. Now it's it's traveling is much more difficult because I live, you know, with a small regional airport and everything's two steps. So I started looking for a job and I knew in my mind that working within government would appeal to me because I had spent so much time on the other side of the table working with government. And it just maybe a couple months into my job search, this job opened up as the city IT director and I went for it. I mean, I've never applied for a job that hard in my life. You know, <laughs> I reached out to some of my former uh, the people who are the, the main clients of projects that I'd worked on. And I, I didn't just ask for a letter of recommendation. I asked for a targeted letter of recommendation just for this job. Cool. And yeah, it was, it was great. And I got to say it was, it was a really wonderful role for me because I was able to come in with this perspective of understanding how the vendor world worked. Mm -hmm. And that's been very useful all through my time because a huge amount of my time is dealing with procurement or dealing with vendor relationships and you know all the administrative aspects of IT. And I was able to walk in with the knowledge of how that world worked. And, yeah. and that's really been that's been great. Okay. That makes sense. So when you joined Urbana right away, did you say to yourself, ooh, uh, as you started learning the environment and learning about their initiatives, was there that moment of 
like uh, of oh wow i'm excited i think i could make some change here or you know where were you thinking about technologies that you could bring in and implement that would make change i was just, you know just curious yeah. around your your thought process there i i was excited because when i walked in the door they had been doing stuff the same way for about 20 years right and there was a longtime IT director who had resigned. There was longtime staff there who'd been doing the stuff. So there were a lot of desires from other people to do things differently. And IT took to the extent of, hey, look, you know, this is how we've always done it. We're just going to keep doing it. It's working for us. So I, I saw a lot of opportunity, but I also knew the perils of trying to take on too much. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I... Let's see, it, it, it's been seven years. So probably for the first two or three years, we mm. focused actually on replacing some of our software systems. Up to that point, we had a lot of homegrown software. And, you know, while that's worked, that worked for a long time and has benefits, cost is great for homegrown software. And the ability to make it customized to exactly what we wanted is great. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of risk when most of your city software depends on one programmer. And, you know, from a long-term perspective, it just wasn't a viable solution. Plus, we were literally, and we still, for example, our timesheet system is still green screen. In other words, green letters on a black background, character-based, data entry, no mouse, you know, no icons, everything is keyboard. So, replacing those things and providing things like the ability to submit a timesheet from outside the office, which we don't have now. So there were there are big victories that we can do with, you know, embracing some some newer technologies like the internet <laughs> that changed how operations work. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that's 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 been the most interesting aspect of it for me is bring you know bringing that change in, but at the same time, constrained by budgets, constrained by limited staffing, constrained by how much we could take on at any one time. So here it is seven years after I showed up and we're finally getting to the timesheets, but right. only because there were a lot of other more critical aspects that we were trying to get to in the meantime. Yeah, okay. I mean, that makes sense. When you look at, I mean, one of the things I was really excited to to ask you was, you know, given your experience, 20 years in the private sector, consulting government, and now seven, yeah, seven plus years working in government, um, you know, when you look at the role IT has played within government and how it's evolved, I mean, do you do you have any thoughts around that? Did you have you seen a shift or an evolution? You know, when you think of IT in government, I have in my time. Now, I, I think it's key to note that our our government is probably about ten years behind where leading edge governments are. Okay, yeah. So you know where we are now. Most people were in 2010. Gotcha. So I, I'm colored by that by that part. To me, though, technology has gone from being not, you know, first of all, it was not part of the process of most people, like, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, most people didn't touch technology. Then there was a phase where everybody had to use technology. And to me, technology became sort of gotten the way of people. I think we're getting to a place now where technology can fade a little bit into the background and become an enabler and not so much of a challenge for people. Part of that's because the people who are coming into government now are familiar with technology. Whereas, you know, government employees tend to have long-term, you know, careers with, within the same place. So right. a lot of the people that we, that were working with technology in say 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, had been there a long time, weren't necessarily comfortable with technology from using it from when they were in their teens. So you don't have as much turnover, you don't have as many young employees as you do again in the private sector. Now we're seeing a phase out of some of those people and we're seeing more employees walking in the door who are very comfortable with technology. So they, you know, to a certain extent, they wanna use it for everything and we have to constrain them and say, uh -huh. hey, look, you, know, you can't just go and you know, use your favorite app to do this because everybody else is using this software package to do that and we all not gotta be on the same place. So, you know, there's, it's almost like a different problem, but at least technology can be that enabler and, and they're not fighting against it. 
So I think that's the biggest thing I've seen is that people are now used to using web-based systems. They're used to using software to do different things. They're used to um, video technologies, which has really you know gone a long way in the last 10 years from being something that was very rudimentary to video is a lot of what we do on many levels. Mm. So I think those are the big shifts. And there's just an assumption now that when people are interacting with the government or people are working for a government, you just assume that things are on the, online. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. There was a there was something else you said in one of your videos that I that I found interesting that I wanted to definitely ask you about. And I, I think the phrase was something like government change can be hard to create. Um, can you can you elaborate? I know again this would have been another video, but I'd love it if you could elaborate on that for me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This was I was writing a piece about why government IT projects take so long. Yeah, I, I, you know, basically I was reacting to the frustration that I was hearing from some of our, you know, the high, the highest level of our organization with, well, why, you know, why don't we have this done yet? Okay. You know, what's taking so long? So I was, I was thinking about it and I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to you know, actually write about this. And I was trying to come up with the right adjective and glacial was the first thing I thought of. And, and then as I noted in, in the piece, you know, that's misleading these days because glacial change actually is pretty fast. <laughs> and also it implies some sort of gradual or at least um, steady process. Tectonic was the phrase I came up with because the analogy that I like to use is the plates of the earth. Mm -hmm. And they're always moving, but most of the time they're moving so slowly that it's not visible. And pressure builds up at those you know, the plates, the tectonic, where the tectonic plates meet. And eventually you do get this sudden movement of an earthquake. Mm. And that analogy struck me as being appropriate for government because, and I, I'm using the, the pandemic now as my best example of this. For years, people were asking, hey, can we work from home? Or I have this person who wants to do this from home. And it was always, oh gosh, we have to set up a VPN. We have to issue equipment. This is really difficult. We're just not going to deal with this right now. And so there's many, you know, and it not also it's always has to do with priorities. Mm. So sometimes change is hard because what the change is not a priority at that time. But what obviously what happened with the pandemic was we had a sudden shift. And all of a sudden it was like, hey, what? You need money for a VPN. You need money for computers. You know, we need to get people working here. Let's do it now. And in weeks we accomplished something that we had not been able to do for years. And I just, it's one example. I mean, there's lots of other examples that I could give, but it's just a case of you have to push and push and push and engage people to make change. And sometimes what happens though, is when people are on board with that change, it's really, you get a short term opportunity to cram a bunch of stuff through. Right. And I've been using the pandemic for that on several levels. Another example for us is our phone system. You know, we, we've been trying to replace our phone system ever since I got there, so seven years, but all of a sudden it became a crisis because we, our phone system wasn't accessible from the outside. People mm. couldn't, people could, I mean, we could forward somebody's phone number to their mobile phone, but there were lots of other limitations about what we could do for employees to communicate with each other. So, all of a sudden the phone system became a priority and you know we again were able to accomplish in a couple months something that had taken us years and hadn't moved forward so i, I really like that analogy because I, I do believe that that's the way things work you have to seize those moments of opportunity though because they're short-lived and usually it's a matter of getting money first of all but also getting executive support and once you have the ear of somebody, once you convince them of why things are a priority, then that's the time you got to move. And then to me, the, the flip side of that, to go back to the original reason I you know, went into that, once you start those projects, you need to make it happen at the fastest speed possible because people are going to be looking for that change. It's the sense of, oh, well, we signed a contract to do that. So why don't we have that new thing yet? Well, because it's a six to 12 month implementation, you know, or whatever it is, but getting that done and making it happen, you have to seize those opportunities. And th that's a really key thing I've learned about government. 
when you and you, you just touched on uh, COVID, obviously, I mean, who isn't talking about that right now, but you just touched on it. And that was another question I really wanted to ask you about. Uh, but but specifically to uh, technology enabling, you know, government and citizens in this in this very difficult time. Uh, do you see certain technologies? Um, are there ones that come to mind? that are assisting your government or can assist government in this in this COVID time we live in? I think I think there'll be some permanent things that stay around after the pandemic. Online okay. meetings is one of them. Right. And not just, you know, casual meetings, but public meetings. It's going to be really interesting when things go back to meeting in person mm. because most localities have rules for public interaction that are based on you come to a meeting and speak to your local elected officials or something like that. And Zoom has really, or, you know, whatever online meeting tool they're using has really changed that. So we have a lot more public interaction. We have people coming to the online meetings that potentially never would have come to an in-person meeting. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate that in the future, some kind of hybrid blend of online and in-person meetings, or if they'll revert back to the pre-pandemic, nope, you have to be here to participate. And it's really a one-directional communication online where they might simulcast the meetings, but people can't join and ask questions online. So that that's going to be one really interesting aspect to see how that moves forward, because Honestly, that's another tectonic shift. I mean, it's it's been a huge change for that to happen. And I don't know if you can go back purely to the in-person model in the future. It's also going to be interesting. People have learned about the efficiency of not commuting. I mean, in some rural areas, people have to commute a long ways to meet up. And I don't know, I mean, how much of that's going to stick also is will they allow people to attend meetings that are who are elected officials, will they allow them to attend online or will they go back to everybody has to be in the room? Right. I know in the state of Illinois, for example, there's very specific rules about that. And really, you cannot attend a meeting online, according to state law, prior to 2020. You could not attend an online meeting unless it, there were very specific subset of illness related kind of things. But if you just happen to be on vacation, you could not just call into a meeting and participate. That specifically was not allowed. Right, right. So that'll, that'll be interesting. I think also the online services aspect. A lot of that has been kicked into a higher gear through the pandemic. Fortunately, I think those will stick. And I think that we will continue to see a huge amount of business performed online that was done in the past by people walking into the building. Our building, for example, is closed, but people can come. There's a phone. They can dial up the department. They'll be met at the door. Mm -hmm. So we're quasi open, but many government buildings are in that kind of situation. And I think people are just getting used to not having to go to a place to transact business. Right. So I, I think some of those things will really be long term. And I think also the working from home aspect, you know, not just in the private sector where I think it's going to be a huge change, but even in government, I think we will from now on, we will always have some people working online. And it's been very interesting because for the very first time, we have essentially remote employees working for the city government. And it's hugely beneficial. There's some expertise that we have somebody who's living like 150 miles away. He was hired as a temporary employee and he's been, you know, kicking butt and taking names, getting work done that they just needed somebody with that skill set. And sometimes it's hard to find somebody in your area with that skill set who will work eight to five, come in every day. But there's a lot more opportunity for governments also to find people who have those skills who live somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah. I think those mindsets, those shifts will be permanent and it's all good. Those are all for the better, I believe. Well, yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. And, and speaking of, you know, for the better on the other side of that, one question I, I did want to touch on as well was it's, it might be a general question, might be difficult to pinpoint, but when we're talking about change, um, another question I had around change was when you are implementing technology 
and and you've just gone through some you know probably rapid I will say adoption of new technologies because of COVID, as has many governments and, and private sector firms for that matter. But when you are implementing technology, whether it's rapid or not, um, you know, are there co- and given your 20 something years experience and being in government now, are there common challenges, you know, you, you've run into that you could talk about and how and also, you know, obviously, I love to always hear how you overcome those types of challenges. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is a huge topic. And let me right. give my perspective first of my background. So I came to technology from what I call the soft side. Okay. I was a business analyst when right. I was in a consulting career. I was a project manager. I understand technology. I can kind of find my way around a network to a certain extent, but I'm not a hardcore technology person. So my perspective is more on the soft side of getting the preparatory steps ready to make it a smooth implementation. So that's where my comments are going to be. There's a lot of other things that I people who know more of the technology would touch upon, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, this is a huge challenge and it's it's not unique to anything now. It's been the same way ever since technology was introduced. It's a matter of making sure that the system is ready for the people and the people are ready for the system. And any kind of new technology is always a challenge for people. Mm. So the first thing that I would always emphasize to people is to focus way up front on knowing what you want and what's important to you. Government has a very convoluted official procurement process. And and I've railed against this a lot because it's really, it's difficult, but there's some value in it. And the number one thing that's valuable in going through a procurement process is identifying what are your key specifications? What are the few things you really need this thing to do? What, What business challenges are you trying to solve? You start with a focus on those, and then that's gonna give you a way to judge the products that you're looking at and identify which one's a good solution. It's also going to make it essential that you build build that into your contract. You know, Mm -hmm. hey, look, these are the things that we need to achieve. You've told us during the sales process that your product does these. Now we are contractually obligating you to deliver them. Mm -hmm. And that's going to avoid heartache down the road. So you have to know what you want. You have to know what your priorities are because when you're comparing products, some of them are going to do some things and some of them are going to do others and they do them in different ways. So I'm huge about the focus on what is it like for the end user? Just to give a quick example, we just last week completed demonstrations for buying an email archiver. So this is a appliance that just ingests email. And then when we get email requests for Freedom of Information Act and is what we call it in Illinois, it becomes a much easier tool for us to use to search email. That's its primary job. So we were looking at what is the user interface like for people to search their email? Is it intuitive? Do you have to understand Boolean logic really well or could pretty much anybody make a search? And those are the kind of end user criteria that you do. So that's, you know, that's the first thing. The second thing I would always throw out there as a major focus for these kind of projects is your one, whatever thing you're doing, whatever project you're doing, the product, the software, the hardware is great, but it always fits into an ecosystem. And so you have to focus on interfaces, interoperability. Will it play well with the other parts of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. With our email archiving tool, we had to emphasize, hey, look, this is the version of our mail server that we use. This is how we run our mail server. Make sure it's going to work well with that. We don't want to have to put three steps in between them. Or in the more common scenario that I'm used to is when you're replacing some kind of core software that's capturing transactions, permits, like we talked about. Okay, so you're doing building permits. Okay. How is that going to talk to the database of the land parcels that we have? How are those two things going to interact with each other and share information? Focusing on those aspects early in the project is huge because you need to know 
oh, wow, we got to write an interface or we have to do a file share or whatever it is. You just have to know what they are because otherwise you're going to wind up in a place where you roll out software and your piece of software does its job, but then people have to take the output, print it, hand it to somebody who has to re-enter it in some other system. The third thing I'd mention on this is you have to work with your end users and prepare them for the rollout. So it's communication, it's telling people, hey, we're gonna be doing this, it's gonna happen in the next couple months. Go back to that timesheet system I was talking about earlier. We're communicating out, hey, this is how it's gonna change things, this is what it's gonna look like, this is what we're gonna do to make it easier for you to learn how to use it. You have to communicate early and often. And too, too many times, you know, software or hardware is simply rolled out and people are not focused on preparing, I'm sorry, the IT people are not focused on preparing the end users for it. And that's really huge because it's right. always gonna be a challenge. And then the last thing I, I would say on this one is, you have to prepare yourself for the fact that just going live is not the end of the process. Mm. Every time I've been through a project, you wind up cutting scope near the end of a project because you can't do everything maybe that you wanted to do, or you just have to make trade-offs or you run out of time or whatever the aspect is. And then you roll it out and people start using it. And then you learn things that you didn't think about or that nobody raised during earlier conversations. So I think you have to prepare yourself for a phase two of the project that once you've rolled it out, you're going to have to go back and make changes. And you just have to bake that into your plans. And I think that's a challenge for people because it's really frustrating. You've just spent all this time to get something to go live. You feel like celebrating and all people can do is complain about the new technology. Right. But that's normal and you just have to expect it and build it into your plans. Yeah, right. So, yeah, those are those are some aspects of change and I don't think that's unique to government, but I I think those are really general rules that apply to all IT change. I think it's a little worse in government just because of the slow rollout nature and sometimes the the fact that you're dealing with people who are not happy about new technology. They're content doing what they're doing and anything that makes their life difficult. Because even though we sell technology as something that's going to make change, ultimately it's going to change people's work and often it's going to make it harder. Right. Usually this is because you're doing more. You know, go back to your building permit example. In the past, you know, we might have had a piece of paper and the key information was that you know, we issued a building permit to this person to do this little text description, and here's the dollar amount. And that was what was entered in a system. And then there was a piece of paper that got stuck in a file. Now you're capturing all this information up front. So when somebody comes and says, hey, we want to know how many, you know, housing units were added during the past 18 months, or what was the impact of the pandemic on the number of commercial properties that were doing renovations? You've got the data to do that, but it requires so much more capture of data. And a lot of times, yeah, we're capturing that from the person who's filling out an online web form, but there are still people who are submitting paper forms. Mm -hmm. And so somebody internally has to take that paper form and do all the data entry. Yeah. So better data, better analysis, which is in many cases what we're getting with these new systems, has a cost in people's time. Mm -hmm. A lot of time we are pushing that data entry onto the public, but it's, it's a change. And I, I think people need to recognize that and be realistic about it. Yeah, no, I hear you. And it's uh, what you said about, you know, training the end user or making sure appropriate, diligent uh, end user training occurs. It's 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 almost I don't want to say comical, but it's in the sense of this idea of, well, yeah, of course. I mean, if we don't get people learning how to effectively use this new technology, then the technology's value is zero like you people use the technology so people need to know how to use it and if there's one part of an implementation 
that it like is so important is I would say end user training is a pretty big piece, right? Right. It's yeah, just, and the the worst is a failed project. Yeah. Because not only is a failed project a waste of time and money, mm. but it becomes a demotivator for people in the future. Uh, oh, I remember when they put that thing in and we spent all that time and then we don't ever we don't even use it anymore. Mm. You know, that's it's doing double damage because it's turning people off of change. So that that's that's another one where it's just you have to take things slow and methodical in government and that ultimately goes back to my thing of why projects take a long time because you have to fight so hard to get approval to do the project you got to get it right. right you don't have the ability to just do it again two years from now it doesn't work like that so yeah, those are, I mean, and again, those are not unique to government, but I think especially the, also the number of different projects that we have to do all the time is different about government. Because, you know, if you think about it, say a city, a local government like us, each of our departments has an entirely different business, so to speak. The police department, which has their core system to record all the, you know, the interactions they have with the public. And then there's the fire department and they have their own system with all their fire information. And then we have the building people and their stuff. And then we have public works and all the assets that we maintain in the streets. And each of them has its own set of information. And because of all those different efforts that are going on, that's where it's so critical for us to make sure that those things go in right. And it's it's a challenge, but I, I will say this. It's also speaks to, if I can, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast who, you know, is considering mid-career change, Government needs implementation people. Mm. In the past, the kind of technology that we had, we had a lot of network people and maybe some software people. But what we need now more than anything are project managers and analysts and data people who can help because we're no longer in a place where we're actually physically building our own software. We're not, those are not the challenges on the project. It's much more this implementation aspect. And government just simply doesn't have enough people who have the background or the title project manager. I, I would love to have somebody on my staff who was project manager certified. Right. Who I could just said, hey, say, hey, you know, look, can you oversee these three different projects right now? We don't have that. And, mm -hmm. you know, either so either you wind up contracting with it or in my case, I wind up being a project manager for multiple projects simultaneously. And. It's just, it's hard. And, and that's a skill set that people aren't used to having as part of government. But for anybody out there who is a private sector employee, who maybe is a little fed up with what's going on, or, you know, and again, the pandemic has changed this, but maybe if we were having this conversation a year ago, I'd say, hey, if you have to travel all the time right. and are kind of sick of that life, yeah, local government is everywhere. And there's multiple levels of local government. So you, you know, wherever you live, there's a very, very local government. There's a, you know, sort of a higher level regional government. There could be a state government. There could be libraries or park districts. They all need good IT people. And I would, I'm excited about the idea for more people who are maybe seeking mid-career change to consider the public sector as a place to apply their skills because we need help. And it's not just that we need network people or PC technicians. We need people with all kinds of IT skill sets, especially as more and more of the time we're talking about cloud-based software. So yeah. it's really not that much of a focus for us to have a DBA or somebody. We much more need somebody who understands the business needs and can support our users. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And that's interesting, actually. So I've got I've got two more questions, and I want to make sure I ended on a high note. So I'm going to ask my uh, my pessimistic question, if you will, first. Okay. Um, and, and that's the one, you know, your background again in IT and in government. I'm really curious if there is any technology, not so much technology, but I really just want to hear what what keeps you up at night, if anything. You know, what do you think about? on your own sometimes related to technology that just has you concerned, if anything. It's just a question I like to ask to see how people respond. Security. Right. That's it. I I found an interview with myself soon after I had taken my job 
And I was talking about security. And again, this was 2013, or it probably was 2014. And I was talking about the security of our networks and how we were worried about somebody coming in and stealing data. And I, I watched that interview and I thought, oh my God, what an idiot. You know, because, or maybe just either I was unaware or things have changed that much because what we now worry about more than anything is ransomware. Right. And ransomware is a real threat to government because of, you know, lack of good security, lack of good backups. So the number one thing that I worry about, because we're still not, you know, it's about resiliency. So we're still not at a place where when we get ransomware, and I always like to say when, not if, when, how long will it take us to restore and how much data will we lose? And my goal is that we'll lose no more than the current day's data. That's my goal. We're not there yet. And that we'd be able to restore operations within a matter of days, not weeks. And we're not there yet either. So that's what keeps me up at night is just getting that call and knowing, you know, and again, it's not that we're going to lose that much data, but we're going to lose time. And there'll be weeks where we're people are unable to complete their tasks because they can't get access to systems or they can't get access to data or files or whatever. So that's it. That's what keeps me up. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was something you said, Oh, when you said, uh, when not if, you know, but I think that's a, a very pragmatic, logical, uh, approach. And I, I, does that, uh, type of thinking though, maybe does that, move your initiatives along if you're thinking not not if but when so are you are you more proactive or i'm just curious if you think that helps with that type of kind of attitude approach it it's just it's a mantra i try to preach to people because there's a sense of well it hasn't happened before you know or and often you know you don't hear about ransomware attacks because people either do a good job dealing with them or they wind up paying the ransom. Right. So there's not enough knowledge in the highest levels, you know, the people who are not who are not reading technology magazines. You know, the people who are just getting their news from the newspaper and things like that, they may not be seeing enough about what a threat is out there. And I try to always educate whoever I can talk to to say, look, this is the biggest threat we have because you know, and, and even if you look on a scale of how likely is it to happen versus the impact, the impact is so great. And actually, it's likely it, you know, I, I, I can speak to for, you know, from our own experience that, you know, we have safeguards in place and those safeguards have worked, mm. which is a relief. Gotcha. But the safeguards are not always going to work. There are many, many ways for, you know, ransomware to get into your environment and so just saying, well, we've been safe so far does not mean that you're going to be safe moving forward. And unfortunately, the people who are perpetrating these attacks are very smart. Mm-hmm. They're changing their attack vectors all the time. And we simply can't keep up with them in terms of the ways that they have to attack versus the ways that we have to defend. Mm. So that's where I my attitude is you just assume it's going to happen and you focus on what can we do to recover? Yeah. Because you can never prevent every vector of attack from malware. Yeah. So that that's what keeps me up at night. Honestly, I mean, beyond that, not much from a technology perspective. Yeah. You know, I, I would say the, the the maybe the secondary challenge is just keeping up with people's expectations. Okay. Because people use technology now on a day-to-day basis, you know, smartphones or websites that they use. There's a huge amount of why isn't it this, this easy to do whatever, Yep. you know, and obviously there's a lot of reasons for that, but just, it's a matter often of understanding where people are coming from and working with them on their expectations and then trying to explain to them that, you know, we can't be as nimble say as, you know, Apple, you know, right. changing their operating system. It's just, that's not how our, organi- our government organizations are built. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the, uh, I, you know, that's the unique, I find, thing about government. And, and maybe it's the challenge, but also it's the, the challenge makes it interesting in that there's this expectation, you know, because of the private sector and, and what all the great technology available and how consumers are able to interact with the private sector businesses and that experience being so great and easy. Well, like you just said, they want the same thing when it comes to government, right? And it's government's challenge to try to their very best to create that same type of uh, relationship, but also it's it's even more difficult because government has less to work with. Like it just like if we just focus on budgets and monetary alone, they have less money than private sector to work with. And so it's almost that's what fascinates me about government is that that great challenge to to try to do more with less, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. It's it is the challenge, right? Um, you know, and that's. I, I can't, I'm not going to downplay that for anybody, but I would say that for people who want to make an impact on their local community, come help with that challenge because good people are what we need to overcome that challenge and skill sets that have been built in the private sector are the best way for us to do that. That's you, we need, you know, to be, to use a cliche, we need outside the box thinking, right? And a lot of times people who've had their only their career within government aren't able to jump to that level of uh, change or don't bring that perspective. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So I've got I got one last question and it it is it is, you know, uh, more optimistic and it, it doesn't have to be government. This is just strictly as someone who likes technology. It's, it's just a question I, I, as we were talking, I thought, geez, I want to make sure I ask this is um, just, again, it doesn't have to be related to public sector, but you know, are there, are there technologies? It could be consumer tech. It could be, you know, enterprise tech, whatever. Are there technologies out there that you're seeing right now that are just, you're just fascinated by or blowing your mind and you can't wait to see where they're going. I just, I just love to get given again all your experience. I, I just be curious to see what wows you. Well, first of all, I'm not a technology person. Ironically, I yeah, on I know my day to day bit, my day to day life, I I use technology, but I don't like technology. Oh, so, really? Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm old school. I so that's that's more about me. Yeah, but. One, I would say from a personal perspective, this video conferencing, okay, it's fascinating to me how quickly this technology has been adopted in the last year. Right. We, we have Zooms with my grandmother, who's 103. I have <laughs> beers with friends who live in different places in the country online. And I would never have thought to do that a year ago but it's become a frequent occurrence and it's a wonderful way to connect with people. And obviously the technology has improved in leaps and bounds from where it was say 10 years ago. So I, I'm really fascinated by this aspect, this online conversation, this, this Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever tool you use. Yeah. At work, I, I, th- I thought about this question a little bit and I would say at work, the most interesting new technology is not really a technology. It's open standards, or actually I shouldn't even say open standards, I should say common standards for data. One of the systems that I work with a lot at work is the police system. Okay. And police records are obviously, you know, in police interaction with the public has been a huge discussion point in the last year. Something that probably a lot of US people, and this is specific to the US, a lot of US people are not familiar with is that the federal government changed reporting standards on January 1st of 2021. So really very recent. And this was, let me tell you that this was not a a change suddenly. This has been going on for literally decades. Okay. But the change was already scheduled and it happened. And now as opposed to the past where police reported information centrally in terms of the counts. So we had 12 robberies last month. We had 15 breaking and entering incidents. Now they're producing very specific detailed data extracts in a common XML standard that are sent into a unified place where it can all be digested in huge, massive databases. Hmm. 
So now they know what type of, you know, and, they ha and everything is coded. So they, you know, they know what kind of property was involved in a theft, or they know information about the victim or information about the arrestee. And all that information is now reported in, in detail. So, and the very fact that all these police agencies are now have a common reporting standard that they're using means that for the first time, the federal government and everybody else will be able to really analyze the results and compare apples to apples across all these different police jurisdictions. Now, let me say this, it's a new standard. Not everybody is ready to send that data. Right. So it, it isn't gonna happen right away. It's gonna take a couple of years for people to roll out upgrades to their systems to produce the new data. But it is that kind of common standards for gathering information that really lets people do analysis on a wide scale. And that's really, to me, that's really cool and exciting. There's a similar type of data format that they're gonna collect for use of force by police. Okay. Which again, obviously has been a huge topic of conversation in the last yeah. 12 months. Just getting standardized data from all these different agencies is going to help enable decision makers and people to have a better dialogue around these issues. So that kind of a process of moving people towards these common layouts, that's that's really great. That enables conversation. It enables analysis. It puts people in a place where they can have those dialogues. Mm. And, you know, so that to me, that's really exciting. And I'm a data guy. I like the results of systems. I think that's a lot of why we capture information so that we can make better decisions. Yep. I'm seeing more and more people get into the idea that we have data and we should make decisions based on it, which is really exciting. Um, the other kind of technology that I'm excited by, and this is more of an administrative note, open source. We spend a huge percentage of our software budget on some of the standard platforms that we just have to keep paying. You know, Microsoft is a good example. We use Microsoft Office. And so Microsoft Office has a yearly cost for each computer that's running Word and Excel and everything else. There are open source versions of all these tools. Right. And more and more we're seeing an openness to moving away from the mega platforms and using different tools. And that's going to, to me, free up money because those are costs that are essentially you know, people just bake that into their expectations. And so the idea that says, hey, you know what? We could save tens of thousands of dollars a year by replacing some of the tools that we're used to with open source, or we could, instead of buying a super expensive piece of equipment, we could you know, get a small Linux box and somebody can configure it to just do this one thing. Those are huge steps forward, but that's gonna take some more time that, again, that's change. It has to be managed like everything else. We've been experimenting ourselves with an, an open source version of Office. And it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. I'll, I'll be honest, the, um, the spreadsheet tool doesn't quite do everything that people like to do in Excel. So there are limitations and we have to manage those, but it's still opportunity is there. And I'm excited by that. And I think that people will have more and more of an of an open attitude. And also on the flip side, you know, p open office, I'm sorry, open, um, open source software has gone from being something that you had to really be an expert to make it work. It's become more commoditized. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to know Linux. You don't have to be able mm -hmm. to get in and, you know, code stuff. You can simply install some out of the box package and be rolling. And, I think that's going to be disruptive and, and more in the sense of just freeing up money for other purposes. Because getting new money can be hard, but re you know, rethinking how you're spending your existing budget can actually be a source of amazing amounts of savings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. I loved what you said about um, data enabling you know, decision making or better decisions or making decisions easier. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think we're just, uh, you know, I think we're just getting to that point where we're starting to, uh, I say we in a general sense, but starting to appreciate the power of data. 
uh, it's just fascinating to me. Well, I think COVID has been another example that's really brought data analysis to everyday mm. discussion in a way that a lot of people haven't. You know, early on in the pandemic, a lot of people were looking at the John Ho Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, sort of site and some data. And then I saw so many, and it's so awesome. People have created their own data analysis tools, mm. taking some of those widely available data sets. There's some. There's a university professor here. We have the University of Illinois, and one of the professors who's a data person um, was able to feed in our local data. So in the same way that people can compare, you know, rates for different, um, you know, in the U.S., different states, or you know, look at how your state's doing versus others. The, even at a local level, he has charts and online sliders and graphs that you can analyze at a locality. And I think that brings it home to people. And obviously, the pandemic and the COVID data is incredibly important right. from, to a person's actual existence on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas sometimes when we talk about data analysis, it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit, little bit out there for people. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited by those huge steps forward and, and the tools to visualize data. You know, it's gone from yeah. being an incredibly that's expensive right. package to some stuff that's just free. Yep. And you can take and get involved and do all kinds of great analysis yourself. Yep. So very excited about those, you know, those movements forward. And I think that's one of the areas that we're going to see in the next, you know, couple of decades more and more people bringing a data-centric view towards government and, you know, hopefully turning that into improvements and, and you know, just to me, number, the number one thing is informed discussion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. More yeah. of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I, I love it. I, I think that's a perfect <laughs> point to end is, you know, where we hope we're going and utilizing data to help with more informed discussions. I mean, that that is definitely um, hopefully going to be a reality, but also I think it's a it's just a nice optimistic view of perhaps taking what we went through with this pandemic and, and what we've been able to accomplish from a technology perspective in this pandemic and then how it's going to enable uh, is going to, you know, better us for the future. So there will be so hopefully some positives out of this crazy, crazy experience we've all gone through. Right. I agree. Right. Great. Well, hey, listen, thanks again for joining me and doing this. I, yeah. I, I really appreciate you just jumping on and doing this so willingly. It's been really cool. This has been another episode of GovTech Q&A. New episodes are uploaded twice monthly and are available via podcast and YouTube. Thank you and take care.